This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Norman uh, Fisher, the uh, former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, said something to the effect that Zen students need to grow up as well as to wake up. And I think that's a honest, if uh, somewhat belated recognition that our practice and our teaching is directed as much to the psychological development of one another as it is to so-called spiritual development. And that that's been for the last generation sort of a crucial question of how to understand each half of that equation and how they relate to one another. I don't know how long it's been since uh, Jack Engler famously said, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. That was a recognition of the same kind of thing. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, in English formulation, it just turned out not to be true. Uh, and I think it was a very catchy phrase that he came to regret because he was endlessly having to explain it and modify it. If at the most basic level to be nobody means to have some kind of experience of emptiness or oneness or kensho, well, unfortunately, the truth is that can happen to anybody, anytime. I think it would be much neater and simpler uh, if Kensho was the culmination of a process of psychological maturation. And I think that in the 60s or 70s, there was sort of a fantasy that that kind of thing was what was going to happen in practice, that gradually, as a person matures psychologically, they become more and more open to the spiritual. But this kind of you know, pyramid with the 
spiritual on top and resting on a firm foundation of the psychological. Uh, that, that turned out to be uh, psychologically naive and wishful thinking. And what we've seen since is not only can spiritual experiences coexist with all sorts of levels of personality development or pathology, but that psychological maturity is not even inconsistent either. Uh, the more we understand about dissociation and trauma and different self-states, the more we understand how many people who have sectors of their personality, which are highly mature and competent, yet still have the capacity to be triggered uh, by things that evoke early trauma into all sorts of kinds of uh, reactivities that can manifest, uh, you know, as fear and anger and, uh, you know, this kind of intense flight or flight uh, reactivity to something that seems out of the blue for someone who's otherwise seeming like they've got it all together. And of course, the whole history of Zen is littered with teachers who seem to have their act together except when it came to their personal relationships and their uh, uh, their intimate and sexual lives. That seemed to exist on a whole other plane or dimension that was not integrated at all with uh, their spiritual lives. So 50 years on, things are a lot messier uh, than we had hoped. Now, all this sort of leads us to ask, how is it that we are trying to structure practice now uh, with a kind of uh, honest acknowledgement of the psychological complexities that people bring to practice as well as their spiritual aspirations? when I've talked about uh, people's curative fantasies, it's been an attempt to make explicit the complicated psychological underpinnings of what presents as spiritual aspiration. And we have to be honest about and come to terms with all the ways in which we typically try to use practice uh, to escape or bypass vulnerability, to bypass emotional need or reactions and so forth. I think this is now a pretty familiar story. In part, 
traditionally the, the growing up piece that you know Norm Fisher referred to was supposed to be the business of uh, you know the monastic residential training. You know, in a traditional way, you get a lot of uh, gung-ho, but otherwise sometimes feckless or disorganized young people come being brought into monastic life, and they they have all sorts of problems with intimacy and anger or substance abuse or crazy relationships. And I think it was Suzuki Roshi's phrase, it was like putting a snake in a bamboo tube, right? You try to straighten them out, literally, right? Uh, But a big part of what residential training did was give consistency, stability, discipline, a schedule, a set of responsibilities, expectations to people whose lives might otherwise be very uh, chaotic. And an enormous part of what uh, I think Zen practice did for people and still does is that level of uh, basic character development, right? You get up in the morning and you show up and, uh, you're on your cushion when the bell rings, and if you got a job, you go do it. And this whole mentality of just do it uh, really can give people a great deal of uh, sense of uh, purpose and dedication and you know self cohesion. Uh, anything that actually happens on the cushion, you know, that's gravy. <laughs> Right, uh, where we could say the icing on the cake, uh, because it's uh, like little kids, you basically get a hold of the cake and just lick the icing off <laughs> and then get a big sugar rush, right? <laughs> That's spiritual practice for most people, right? <laughs> Now, it's a little more complicated uh, to deal with that uh, growing upside in a non-residential lay practice center. Uh, Obviously, from the beginning, I've tried to integrate therapy and Zen practice to get at that growing upside from a different direction. And uh, that worked in its own idiosyncratic way that is not not that replicable uh, by other people in other places. Uh, But, you know, 25 years or so ago when I started this out, basically I, you know, talked to a bunch of my patients who might be interested in this sort of thing and said, let's have a sitting group that maybe we, you know, might have asked them to join group therapy. Well, it's going to be a different kind of group therapy. We're going to sit and not talk. (laughs) (laughs) 
but you know, basically, I recruited a group of people who were interested in this, you know, integration of their psychological practice and their spiritual practice. As we get bigger and we get virtual and things are structured differently so that, you know, I don't see everybody in therapy anymore. There are too many of you and so forth. Uh, we do have to try to ask, what kind of training or structure uh, do we present, particularly to newcomers, that can incorporate some of that psychological mindedness and some of that framework? I think people need to be inculcated in a sense of community, in a commitment to a regular schedule, into some kind of showing up discipline. And uh, I think that's harder to do in this context, but we need to keep it in mind. Uh, and I think that more and more, uh, that's going to be the uh, responsibility of the Sangha as a community and Chris as the resident to embody that kind of uh, cohesion because I'm just not physically around so much anymore. That's, that's reality of things. I'm gonna keep teaching for the foreseeable future, but a lot of it will be on Zoom. Uh, but when new people come here, I think uh, we don't wanna give them the impression that this is uh, just an interesting show that shows up on the screen, you know, that they can tune into once a week and that that's, uh, uh, that's Zen practice. Uh, how to get people integrated into the sense of commitment and discipline uh, and community. I think that's uh, a challenge for all of you in the, the coming generation. I want to say one more thing about the old uh, dichotomy of growing up uh, versus waking up. Uh, Andrew Tutel, who teaches an ordinary mind group in Australia, uh, refers now to the relational self as the part that's growing up. And he uses that term as a way to get out of the Buddhist terminology of self or ego is something that people think they're supposed to be getting rid of, right? That we've been dealing with that bugaboo again for the last 50 years. You know, how many times do I go someplace where they say, doesn't psychology try to strengthen the self and the Buddhist say the self doesn't exist, or if it does, we're trying to get rid of it. Right? Could get a little tired of answering that question. <laughs> uh, if we were to refer to the relational self, what we're trying to do there is at least talk about all the legitimate needs of a human being, of a person, 
for love and intimacy and empathy and value and meaning. All these things are vital parts of uh, healthy psychology that we're not trying to get rid of. And they're all, they're all the things that, in a sense, were taken for granted as part of the background character development of the monastic training. So not only does the self exist, but we need to uh, respect it, take care of it, and grow it. We're not trying to say it's non-existent or make it go away. I'll say for the thousandth time. What about the other side? We have all this language about Buddha nature and the true self. Well, what is that? Now, uh, a typical kind of metaphor that sort of permeated practice uh, was essentially picture that underneath all this psychological stuff, which we're trying to wipe away, will be the true self, will be your Buddha nature. All you have to do is get rid of yourself and personality and ego, and under, under all that will be the pure gold of true self, right? And sometimes that got called things like uh, pure awareness or consciousness or something, right? And, and the, the dilemma then became that certain states of samadhi or concentration got identified with, oh, now I'm plugging into the real thing rather than to have a sense that any state of concentration or awareness is, is simply another uh, capacity of your physical body and mind. It's, it's something, it's an aspect of a person. You're not plugging into something vast and cosmic and transcendent. Your body is in a different state. And sometimes we cultivate those states. Sometimes they come naturally. But the uh, one of the sort of paradoxes uh, that we come around to after all these years is that it turns out that the everyday self that everybody was trying to get rid of is very real. And we're not getting rid of anything. What we realize is it's impermanent. It's constantly changing and it depends on all sorts of other people and conditions. So the emptiness of the self is a realization of that, that reality of change. But the self is a real part of real people. You know what turns out to not exist? The true self. <laughs> Got the whole damn thing backwards. <laughs> Sorry. 
what the true self turns out to be is that experience of the absolute as being just this moment, right? Of simply being present in the moment, your true face, your original face, just this. Now, normally, we're, we're always saying, this isn't it. This is not right. I'll, I'll, I'll be one with the moment, but not this moment. I'm, I've got a different moment I want to be one with. And so we, have, we operate in a world of endless uh, fussiness and complaint and judgment. And basically what Joko did in all those years was teach the absolute as manifesting as your bodily tension, as your anxiety, as your irritation, as your thinking. These aren't all resistances to overcome. It's stop, wait a minute, this, this too is it. This too is it. And what we call Kensho is some moment in which you, for whatever reason, stop wiggling around and trying to climb out of your own skin and just stay in the moment. And sometimes that's a big deal. Sometimes it just becomes more and more a natural part of the background. It can be such an unusual experience that we think, oh my God, you know, I've, you know, I've seen God now or something, right? Uh, but basically, it's an experience of a, a fundamental just okayness of, of being this. But it's not plugging into a, another reality. It's not finding something deep inside that's been hidden all this time uh, that now you're uncovering. There are all these sort of tricks and koans that make you think you've got to go deep inside to find your true self. Well, it's actually just the opposite. Zen is trying to teach you to become extremely superficial. <laughs> It's all right on the surface, right? It's all right on the surface of each moment in each breath. And it's a shame that that gets reified into something all abstract and transcendent like Buddha nature or original face or true self. In a way, the trick of that kind of language is to join with you in your curative fantasy until it, you push it to a breaking point. Right? You think something's hidden? Be my guest. Knock yourself out. You know, go search for it. You know, and that's like the story of the second patriarch who uh, says, my mind is not at rest. Well, bring me your mind. I'll, I'll put it at rest for you. If your father says, I, I've looked everywhere, I can't find it, right? well, then it's at rest. It's that 
it's the first he sends him on this hopeless quest. But it, and it's only by, for most people, wearing it out uh, that it comes to any kind of conclusion. You know, I'm uh, trying to sneak you the answer here and maybe save you a little trouble. <laughs> I don't know if that does anybody any good or not. So our task is growing up and waking up. I hope we're getting a little clearer about what that means. <laughs>